Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the POMEPS Podcast, our series of conversations with top scholars in the field. With me today is Vicki Langer. She's an Associate Professor at the College of the Holy Cross. Uh, Vicki, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. So you've been doing some really interesting research about uh, the, the, these campaigns about uh, public sexual harassment in Egypt. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about your research and, um, and why you think this is so significant? Well, sexual harassment has been, public sexual harassment meaning particularly in the street, people walking on the street, riding public transportation, that's what I focus on, and the much more extreme version of it, public sexual violence, as we saw when there used to be major protests in Tahrir that it escalated from sexual harassment to actual rape. Uh, And that part was not as present so much before the revolution, but public sexual harassment was endemic well before the revolution, but it was not nearly as much a focus of women's rights activists' expertise and attention. They used to focus much more on personal status laws regulating women's rights in the family, children's Mm -hmm. rights, uh, criminalizing female genital mutilation, so legal approaches to private issues within the family. And so what my research is documenting is a change in the environment post the overthrow of Mubarak, which has really found a a new group of younger men and women, and the men part is particularly important, uh, interested in working on what they see as the primary women's rights issue, which is not based in the family, in the private sphere, in legal change per se, but in the just basic right of women and ability to walk, to take the public buses, et cetera, without being exposed to sexual harassment. So what kinds of campaigns have they been have they been running? So all kinds of campaigns. The most ongoing ones are, are educational ones, which folks do in all kinds of universities. Cairo University in the last year has implemented its own anti-sexual harassment on campus institution, and that's been one of the nice things that even though there's been a crackdown on the ability of folks to work in the streets, there still is stuff happening in what I would call a semi-public sphere, like mm-hmm. a Cairo University campus. Uh, when protests were still allowed to happen, groups would organize and, and dress kind of in particular uniforms and go down to Tahrir in particular and engage themselves looking out for opportun- looking out for what appeared to be the beginnings of incidents of mass sexual violence to physically intervene since the police were doing nothing and to uh, give women whatever help they needed. Uh, there's been a lot of change in the coverage in the media, which has been fantastic as the proliferation of satellite channels, which are independent of government control for the most part, have covered a lot of these initiatives and that has helped in the TV sphere to be a springboard to larger discussions about why is this happening, how has it changed over time, why does it seem to be much more prevalent in our society. And some of those conversations have have gone very deep. Questions about are some conservative religious groups, for example, when the Muslim Brotherhood was in power, facilitating this inadvertently through their discourse about when women should be in the public sphere. Questions about are there relations between poverty and the incidence of sexual violence, which almost all women's groups have repudiated and said men of all sexual, men of all income levels do this. But my point is it's opened up a much larger and pretty hard-driving discussion about the causes of the phenomenon. What, what, what do you think, you know, when you listen to that debate, I mean, what do you think explains it, um, the, this, this seeming increase in, um, in mass public sexual harassment? I, would, I don't really have an answer. I mean, that's really something that's very much debated among these various groups. So certain things that are commonly offered, I think, have been pretty much demolished by the, by the research. So, for example, many people will argue it's that you have huge amounts of people who are understood to be less sophisticated uh, coming in from the countryside and living in Cairo, and it's primarily those people, or it's primarily, primarily poorer people. Or some people have argued that 
because it's more and more difficult for people to get married because they don't have jobs. Oh, they must be so sexually frustrated. Well, when people um, actually do polls and actually survey women, no, it's rich men as much as poor men. It's, it's married men often as much as unmarried men. It's younger, prepubescent boys. So many of those kind of common ideas, I think, have been pretty clearly gotten rid of. Or not gotten rid of, you still hear them a lot, but have been, as social scientists, we can't take them seriously anymore. But I don't have a good affirmative explanation for what I think is going on. There's a perception, at least, that this is something which is more endemic in Egypt than, uh, than in other countries. Is that an accurate perception, or, or is this something which is kind of an artifact of, of you know, high-profile events? I don't know. I mean, I've, I've heard, I haven't traveled and spent enough time in enough other Arab countries to be able to say myself. I have certainly heard some colleagues make that comment. Uh, but I know, for example, there's a burgeoning movement in Lebanon, for example, against sexual mm-hmm. harassment. Uh, part of my own research has been looking outside the Arab world at the spread of these movements transnationally. So mm-hmm. India, for example, has a very large and growing movement against sexual harassment. So I wouldn't, I don't have enough knowledge to know whether Egypt is worse, but I do think it's worse in many places than we believe, and it's activists coming to the fore and working on it that's calling this to our attention. But you mentioned the media before, and, and this, this is something we talked about at, uh, when you were here for a panel at GW. Um, it, it's this question of, has there actually been a significant increase in, uh, in these incidents of, of public sexual harassment or sexual violence? Or is it something which is being covered more in the media and getting more attention so that the, the, the actual number of events hasn't really changed, but now it's become more of an issue? Do you, do you have a sense of which of those things it is? I think it depends on the time horizon. So people, Egyptians will often tell you several decades ago, this was not something that was happening a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have data from 2008, for example, before the revolution that shows pretty close to the same numbers of women polled saying that they experienced harassment even on a daily basis. So there hasn't been a significant change Since the revolution, different people have found different things. Hmm. Um, Some focus groups have found women saying unanimously they think it's increased. Other studies, when you look at the numbers they they find Mm -hmm. in their polls, the polls are not that different from pre-revolution polls. What is clearly different, or was when you had protests, was the high incidence of, of severe sexual assault at protests. You did have that in limited experiences, for example, in 2005 when women and men protested against the constitutional amendments and what are now widely understood to have been plainclothes policemen assaulted women activists. So the idea of, of public sexual assault of politically active women is not unheard of, but at the levels and the frequency that was happening in some of the protests in Tahrir, that is unknown. Hmm. So then... The uh, the emergence of these uh, of these anti harassment campaigns. Um, what what explains the emergence of those particular campaigns? Then, if if the problem hasn't changed all that much, why do you see these movements emerging at the time you do and in the form that you do? I have to say, I really do think a lot of it was the experience of the revolution itself. And you, as you know, I mean, all Egyptians refer to the period of the eighteen mm-hmm. days and what came after it as the revolution. And in the interviews that I've done with members of many of these groups, um, many are 20, 21, 22, and I would ask them, you know, have you been politically active, were you politically active before the revolution? And many of them were socially active against corruption or things like this, but many would say, you know, I never even dreamed there could be anybody but Mubarak in power. Not because they liked him, but the Mm -hmm. the political horizon of the imaginary was, was not there. And so I think for people of that generation, it really just opened up the possibility that the revolution seemed to bring 
seemed to really energize people. And if you remember, right after the revolution, there were even groups that went out and tried to prettify the streets. There was an enormous mm -hmm. amount of kind of social energy, particularly among younger people. I think the fact that public sexual harassment has become more of an issue among 20 and 30 somethings is often because they're in public more. Hmm. You know, particularly when protests became the norm. You know, if you're 45 or 50 and married with kids, you're not spending the night in Tahrir. <laughs> you know, um, you're not even free to comment every other Friday and spend the whole Friday in Tahrir. That's something that younger women and men do. And then the younger women who do it were the ones who were more exposed to sexual harassment. So I do think that there, there is a, a generational angle to it. And then as we were talking about in the aftermath of the revolution, uh, the media was freed substantially through the licensing of more than double as many satellite TV stations that were not under state control in the months after Mubarak's departure. And those have been much, much freer in their coverage of of events. And why? I mean, probably partially because there's competition. You know, you look for the, the thing that kind of sells. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, many activists complain a lot about the, uh, the prurient nature of the interest of many journalists. I had one person I interviewed who was an anti-harassment movement say... He had hundreds over the years of, of journalists calling and saying, could you bring a survivor? Could you bring a survivor? And could she talk a lot about, you know, so there's clearly a lot of the interest is not generated by, by noble motives and real concern for women. And activists are certainly aware of that. But even getting that story out is important. And then some of the, some of the programs have really, as I said, talked about issues like, is the religious discourse more generally about women not really being in the public sphere? How does that help? So there have been some really hard-hitting discussions. Now, over the last couple of years, there's been uh, it's become a lot more difficult to protest in Egypt. Uh, crackdown on on opposition in general, uh, new protest laws, um, you know, much more rigid enforcement of, of control over public space. Um, how has that affected uh, both the campaign and the incidence of sexual violence itself? In a lot of different ways. I mean, clearly you can't have mass sexual assault at protests when there aren't protests, so that clearly has changed. Uh, I don't have much of a sense of whether the sexual harassment incidents on the street has changed, but some of what happens is, for example, for quite a long time, um, one of the major metro stations in downtown Tahrir was closed ostensibly for security reasons because they didn't, the police didn't want people to be able to get into Tahrir from the subway, right? And that had immediate sexual harassment implications, which people don't think about, but because a lot of the sexual harassment happens in the subway, on extremely crowded subway platforms. As you know, there's in each car of the subway, there's a single car that only women are allowed to ride. Um, some women don't want to ride in that. Even so, if you have fewer stops, you know, there's only so many women who can fit in one car. Anytime there's mass um, crowding in public transport, sexual harassment increases. So a lot of the security crackdown has ramifications that increase sexual harassment that were not necessarily immediately obvious to the mm -hmm. observer. But the good part is that even though activists can't work in the streets anymore in the way that they used to against sexual harassment, as I said, there has been a spread of this into institutions where it happens all the time, like Cairo University, like more universities outside of Cairo, which has been fantastic. Uh, more NGOs and human rights groups have been springing up outside of Cairo again to work on these issues in their local communities. So the form that was common of people, you know, sitting in Tahrir or talking about it in public spaces is not as possible anymore. But I don't think that means that the, I mean, the issue has moved in different directions that I think will also be fruitful. Is, is there, do you see any difference in the trends between the evolution of this type of campaign and then the ones that are about, you know, politics or, you know, the, the more traditional types of protests and movements? Um, I would say that that's to some extent, an artificial um, 
distinction in the sense that, first of all, the protest angle, for example, the women who were going to protest were politically active, right? And many of them were parts of political parties. And one thing that's been interesting is, as I was talking to one of these activists about ways that people are still working on this, even though she's from a left-leaning political party, she was talking about in her own experience when people first started to get assaulted at protests and she was harassed at a protest, she first didn't feel comfortable even telling men in her party, and this is a left-leaning party, which we would have liked to have believed wouldn't have some of these problems, because she was afraid she wouldn't be believed, that she would be seen as blackening the face of the revolution, etc. Now she feels the party takes it much more seriously. So I don't know that I would see them as parallel or as this as a kind of action outside of politics, because many of these people are very politically active. Now what about the state? Has there been any response uh, one way or the other uh, from government agencies? So in 2014, the government finally finished an amendment which made which increased the penalties for and made it slightly easier to prosecute people accused of sexual harassment. And some anecdotal evidence suggests that the number of people actually filing complaints has increased. I have done interviews with lawyers who have tried to uh, uh, do some of these cases, have tried to bring some of these cases to court, and it's extremely difficult. Often uh, the relatives of the man will try to... uh, get the pressure of the woman's family to drop the charges. Many women don't want to bring the charges because, unfortunately, uh, people in their family will believe that if they've been harassed, they must have brought it on themselves in some way. There's been a lot of very good discussion of that on TV programs, which has been very helpful, the familial side mm-hmm. of, of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot that remains to be done, and a lot of this has been done without much input from the groups on the ground that actually do this work, which has been a consistent complaint. Uh, but nonetheless, almost all the groups very much welcomed those amendments. Was there a sense, uh, you know, going back to something you said uh, a little while ago, is there a sense that this was a coordinated, like, state strategy to break up protests and to discredit the protest movement Mm -hmm. or intimidate activists, or is it seen as more something that was just, you know, a response to the chaos in the streets? I mean, how do the people running these campaigns interpret Mm -hmm. the targeting of protesters? That's also something that's caused a lot of division. I mean, some people believed, because of the example that I gave you in 2005 Mm -hmm, in particular, mm -hmm. that there had been a history of state actors using public sexual assault to shame protesters and ideally, from their point of view, send a message to other women that they couldn't do that. Uh, That model was foremost in many women's minds, and so the expectation was that that was probably what was being done here. I think particularly because the the phenomenon of the attacks in Tahrir at the protests rose to prominence while Morsi was in power. I don't personally think there was a connection there, but that the fact that that whole regime was very anti-women helped facilitate that interpretation. I think many women's rights groups argued against that with the argument that this has been there for a long time, and unfortunately, sexual harassment itself, not always rising to the level of assault, is endemic. And so this may be an opportunity. You know, I mean, you have large mm-hmm. numbers of people there. There's very little police patrolling. Uh, the problem is probably much more more deep and more societal than just a question of some political actors taking advantage of the situation. But there are people within the movement who have both interpretations. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Vicki Langer, uh, College of the Holy Cross. Uh, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me.